Hi, this is I See Liu. Welcome to Ungrafted, a podcast about wine, humanity, and the planet. If you like these episodes, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Today we celebrate Regenuary with Jordan Lonberg, viticulturist of Tablas Creek. Tablas Creek farms 120 acres of Rhone varieties in Paso Robles, California. They were certified organic in 2003. They have been farming biodynamically since 2010 and received their biodynamic certification in 2017. They are the first regenerative organic certified or ROC winery by the Regenerative Organic Alliance. Established in 2017, the three main pillars of the ROC include soil health, animal welfare, and farm worker fairness. ROC requires minimal irrigation, with the idea that healthy soils need less water. Jordan and I talk about these three pillars, including regenerative farming, tilling, carbon sequestration, cover crops, mob grazing, bees, compost, and biochar, and lastly, animal and worker welfare. Jordan, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate your time, bright and early. <laughs> no, thank you, Icy. I get up with the sun, so. <laughs> so uh, you're the viticulturist at Tablas Creek. Tell us how you got to where you are now today. Well, I went back to school. I wasn't really sure about where my life was headed. You know, I, I didn't. I graduated high school and did some community college. Started traveling. I, I met my wife in Costa Rica, and she was going to school at Cal Poly University in San Luis Obispo. I moved out here from the East Coast to continue my chase for her, and I got to California and found agriculture.、Uh, I worked on a farm up in Mendocino for a year, and really fell in love. With plants, and from there I enrolled、uh, at Cal Poly. Went, did some time at a local community college just to get back into school. Enrolled at Cal Poly and became a fruit science major. So studied all forms of perennial agriculture. We really wanted to stay in the area, and the most viable career choice was grape farming. So from Cal Poly, I got a job working for a vineyard management company in Monterey, California. I became a pest control advisor, and after about what four years, I was managing three thousand five hundred acres of grapevines that were conventionally farmed. I, in my heart, always wanted to be a part of the organic world. And felt deep down that maybe I could make a change、uh, working for this conventional company, and it became quite clear that 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 wasn't going to be the case. You know, at the end of the day, it was about the bottom line, and not that organic farming is more expensive, but on that scale, there is a difference. It's it's considerable, and. Yeah, I spent four years there. You know, at the end of the day, it was the best possible classroom I think anyone could be in, working on a vineyard of that size and scale. Because you know, my job then and now is 
to figure out issues, you know, to find solutions to problems and just about anything that could possibly go wrong on a vineyard, you would have found at this property. So it was an amazing experience. And then this opportunity popped up here at Topless Creek. I applied for the job, met with Neil Collins, the winemaker, and thankfully he hired me. And I really, I feel like I've, I've found my, my dream, my dream job. I mean, this is, this is the epitome of organic and regenerative farming here on this property. And we're really uh, encouraged to push the limit when it comes to that style of farming. So yeah, it's just an amazing place to work. I feel very lucky. Yeah, I remember um, in one of your interviews, you had mentioned that when you do conventional farming, you have a very wide toolbox. And when you work organic, biodynamic, and in this case, regenerative farming, the toolbox is more narrow. But I would imagine that um, once it does work, then it works better and you need to, I don't know, look for less um, solutions because they kind of work itself out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I think on a on a conventional scale or or style, you have immediate results, right? There there isn't a long term picture when you're farming conventionally. Unfortunately, you're farming in a style where if you have an insect pest issue, you address that right then and there and you're good for that season or whether it's a a mildew or you know anything along those lines you have this wide range of chemicals that you can use to address that issue right then and there organic farming and biodynamic farming and regenerative farming it's it's the long game you know uh there might be issues that you're dealing with and your toolbox is so small, you really have to think outside of the box. And like, so you have an insect pest that you're trying to deal with. What other sort of insects can you bring in? And how do you bring them in? What sort of plants can you have on the property? They're going to attract those, those insects, those beneficial insects that can deal with that pest you're really looking at the life cycle of that insect and of the few products that you can use, when is the best time to apply those products? So yeah, it's this, it's this really intricate web and, and anything you do is going to affect one strand of that web, you know, thus resulting in maybe diminishing the structural integrity of that web. So a lot of trial and error, and you have to have a certain threshold of acceptance. You know, you have to you have to be willing to give up a little bit today to gain a lot more tomorrow. Totally. Today, I'd like to focus on the certification of Regenerative Organic Alliance, and you guys are the first winery in the world. Well, I guess it started only in the U.S. for now, but congratulations, you guys, the only one who certified with this organization. So maybe we can start by you helping us understand what regenerative farming is. Yeah, you know, regenerative farming, it, it, it focuses on the soil. I mean, that's paramount. If you have healthy soil, you'll have a healthy vineyard or farming system. It's a style of farming that, you know, originated 
I believe I believe it was like JJ Rodale, who is really one of the first proponents of regenerative farming and and focusing on the the soil microbiome. And yeah, it was um, his son that coined the term. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So. So yeah, it's really you're you're farming your ground, you know, and everything else I think is just a bonus. So that's that's really where the the mindset with regenerative farming lies. Okay. And there's also other components that we'll get into later, but specifically within soil health, what are some of the things that you guys look at? So the idea of regenerative farming would be carbon sequestration and and ways at which you can attain the highest amounts of sequestering that carbon. And, you know, tactics that allow you to do so would include, you know, cover cropping, minimal tillage, incorporating animals into your system, the use of biochar. You know, there's a lot of different components there. And what we are focusing on, you know, we've we've farmed organically since 2003. We've had a biodynamics certification now for about five years, but farmed biodynamically for 10 total. So the, the, the keys were all there, but we never really, it was never, there was never like focus on the ground. You know, it, it, it was more following the, the tenets of organic and biodynamic farming and they don't really focus on your soil where that is the core of regenerative farming. So now that, you know, this certification is in place, it has shifted our mindset a little bit. And we really think about why we're doing what we're doing as far as, you know, mechanical tillage is concerned and cover cropping. So that's something where we're, we're really diving into a lot deeper. How are our actions going to affect that microbiome that's underneath our feet, you know? And, you know, we've intensified our grazing processes. We've shifted the way we till, which is a work in progress. You know, tillage is, is kind of crucial in this part of the country to farm the way we do, minimal irrigation or dry farming. So trying to stay within those those guidelines has been a little bit of a, a challenge for us, but we feel we're starting to achieve the goals that we've set for ourselves. And well, correct me if I'm wrong, but the whole concept of biodynamics, they do focus on soil health, no? Like we, they talk about also the ecosystem being sustainable in itself. You know, there are composts, you know, preparations, et cetera, that do encourage soil health, no? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm sorry, I, I, had, I misspoke a little bit. Um, without a doubt, that is definitely a focus of of biodynamics, one of the many. And, you know, with your your 500, your cow horn prep, you know, stimulating all of your, that microbiome with that spray while the, the soil is wet, the composting, without a doubt, it's a part of biodynamics. But regenerative farming, the difference between the two, you know, where biodynamics just focuses on soil health, Regenerative farming focuses on soil health, 
with the idea that you're sequestering carbon. Gotcha. That's where the difference lies. You know, it's there is no talk of carbon sequestration in in biodynamic farming where regenerative farming is addressing climate change specifically. Yeah. And is there actually a soil test in part as part of this certification and what how does one measure? Is there a measurement for carbon? What does that look like? Yeah, we run we are running samples through Cornell University's soil lab, the Cash Lab, um, and they do measure the amount of carbon within the soil. So you know, we take our samples at different different depths in the root zone. We sampled from uh, trellised parts of the vineyard that are currently no till, parts of the vineyard that receive minimal tillage parts of the vineyard that are tilled on a yearly basis and also native ground on the property. So we had those four or five different samples pulled off all with different farming styles and they measure the organic matter in the soil as far and as well as the carbon that is currently contained there. Moving forward, I believe they require a sample every three years. And if your carbon that is sequestered, if those levels go down, I think that will that will be kind of a red flag when the audit comes. Like what what have you been doing here, you know? And and now, you know, in this pilot program, that was also one of the arguments we were trying to make where, you know, they were basically requiring you move towards a no-till environment. And one of the arguments we were making is that's a really dangerous requirement. You know, what if, what if people are dry farming? You know, if, if you dry farm, especially here, you need to till, you create this dust mulch layer on the, you know, top five inches of the soil to prevent it from cracking. We have such high clay content here. We experience temperatures well over 100 degrees for multiple weeks out of the growing season. If you don't disturb that top five inches of soil, it's it creates this kind of a pan effect. And as that moisture is drawn out of the soil, the, the soil shrink and these deep, deep cracks can form and you start losing all your moisture from your soil profile. So you need to break up that first four or five inches and create a cap. So that requirement for us was really, that was a dangerous one. Because one farmer is doing something in Virginia or Colorado doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work in California. And basically what I was asking for is, you know, focus on the the soil samples and focus on the results. And if they're, if it's in a farmer's improving the amount of carbon they're sequestering and the amount of organic material in their soil, what does it matter how they're farming? You can't have a, a guy from Virginia telling a guy from Colorado how to farm and a guy from Colorado telling a, a girl from California how to farm. It shouldn't be like that. You know, I think you, you need to put your trust into the grower themselves and, and hope that they're improving their soil under those guidelines. Okay. And do you, do you know some of the results from that soil test that you sent to Cornell, like how the different amounts of carbon varied by the different tilling practices? It was very interesting, actually. We use an implement called uh, a spader, 
it is a form of vertical tillage. And we'll take it into blocks where cover crop is four feet, five feet, even six feet high some years. And it drives that cover crop a good eight inches into the soil profile. Under their guideline, I mean, that that is way too deep for the ROC. And, and they don't, they really don't want you going more than three or four inches into the ground. We took samples out of that block and it was unreal. I mean, there were, there were numbers that you just do not see in any sort of farming system concerning carbon sequestration and organic material. So again, back to that, that, that requirement on a vineyard, we're, we're farming, this is a perennial system. Right. So every every six feet, there's a there's a root system. Twelve months out of the year, there's something growing, whether it's the grapevines or or the cover crop. This isn't a field crop situation or a row crop where we're tilling an entire field. You know, there there's vines every eight feet, eight by three. So that was eye opening for sure to see those numbers on a block that's been tilled pretty heavily on a yearly basis. And, and I think that has a lot to do with the cover crop that we are we were incorporating back into the soil profile. We have run a study with Cal Poly and UC Davis, a no-till versus till study over the last three years, and they have found no considerable difference on a till versus no-till system on this site, right? So everything I'm saying to you now and today this is based on Talbus Creek and our soils in specific. I can't speak for the guy that's 10 miles east of us and, and how these practices would affect their soil. So what we're doing here is, is on paper is working. Yeah, I mean, there is there was really no drastic statistical difference that we saw through our soil samples and through this study on a till versus no-till system. Mm-hmm. So again, and that's that's specific to this site and that's organic farming for close to 20 years now. Well, I guess if it's a three-year study, one could argue that maybe that's not enough time to yeah. see the result. We may be tilling in between the rows, but you know, there's a lot of grapevine roots in between those rows. Maybe not in the first five inches of that soil, but beneath that, for sure. You know, those roots are alive and active all year long. So I think that that is definitely a distinguishing factor when when you're talking about perennial versus row crops or a field crop. You know, we're not we're not running a disc over 20 acres, you know, every inch of those 20 acres. It's it's, you know, four feet in between the rows and then you have another three feet of soil that's undisturbed. So I think measuring that, maybe we should start taking samples of both and, and doing a side by side. How much does that actually change from the base of that, that grapevine to the very center of that row? I think that would be a very interesting sample to take. Totally. Um, One of the other things that you had introduced is also bees in the winery. Why did you do that? And um, what, what did it do? Well, for me at Cal Poly, I took a class. It was a beekeeping class and it just grabbed me right away. I think 
like most people that are ever able to take a class with beekeeping with someone that actually knows what they're doing, even those that don't. I mean, it's such a captivating species. They really are are fascinating in, in the way they work. And, you know, when I came onto this property, there there wasn't a beekeeping program at the time. And it just fit. They're the core of nature. I mean, they are why we are here. So I took a lot of those principles that I learned in school and brought them here. We don't buy bees. All the bees on the property are native. I catch the swarms on a yearly basis as needed. And, you know, they're all native, native honeybees. I think they're probably all Africanized which is kind of cool. They're not the best at producing honey, but the colonies are, are, are strong. I think they have really good resistance to the varroa mite, which is a, a definitely a contributor to colony collapse disorder. And, you know, it was just one more component to increasing the biodiversity on the property biodynamic principle is you know being as far away from a monoculture as you possibly can and closing that loop so the bees were just another component of that biodiversity mm -hmm. and it's been tough i mean there are some years that it's really tough you know we don't we don't we get you know average around 25 inches of rain here but there are months out of the year when there are very few plants that are blooming and the food source for the bees dwindles. So, you know, we're in the process of planting throughout the property native vegetation that is flowering during those months and trying to promote that food source for them to keep them around. And I think we've been pretty successful at doing so. Yeah. Okay. One of the other principles is um, animal welfare. What does that mean and what did it, does it look like at Tablas Creek? Yeah, they, they're ensuring, it's it's about ensuring the lifestyle of your animals. They're the, the five freedoms that they talk about through the regenerative organic certification. And those five freedoms are freedom from discomfort due to environment, freedom from hunger, thirst, and malnutrition, freedom to express normal behavior for the species, freedom from fear and distress, and uh, freedom from pain, injury, and disease. So our herd is never truly confined for you know, an extended period of time in one area. They're constantly moved, so they have enough of a food source. They're never exposed to the elements. There's always some sort of shade structure, whether it's man-made or um, provided by nature in itself. You know, the process of moving the animals to slaughter is done very humanely. They're, they're not forced or pushed. You know, we get them very comfortable with the trailer and they, they start moving in and out. And when we have to thin the herd. It's a very simple process. You know, they're not, there's no real stress involved. There's constantly a food source for them, you know, things of that nature. Mm -hmm. 
What kind of, what animals do you guys have? We have a herd of sheep that we graze on the property. They're really the heart and soul of our nutrition program. Don't fertilize here. They are our fertilization. So we have, you know, anywhere, depending on the time of year, anywhere from 180 to 250 sheep on the property. We're lambing right now. So we, we try and get them to start lambing right now. That's the goal. They lamb once a year. And basically the, the idea there is as they're weaning from their mothers and moving to feed on the ground, that's when the cover crop and all the native vegetation is really starting to take off. So we maximize the amount of animals that are feeding in the vineyard during the dormant season. And yeah, it's been, it's been fascinating to see the health of the vineyard improve as drastically as it has once we really locked in this this grazing pattern, this mob grazing tactic that we use here. We brought on a, a shepherd four years ago, Nathan, and he's really he's really streamlined the process. You know, it's amazing. I was just giving a tour the other day and showing people the herd. They're all starting to lamb right now. It's the cutest time of year to be out here. And you look down on the ground of this property and you'd be hard pressed not to see some form of manure, whether it's urine or their droppings on the ground. And that's, that's every, just about every inch of, of the vineyard. And each one of those pellets is a, a fertilizer dropping on a conventional scale. You think about fertilization and they're either putting it through the drip or they're putting it on foliarly and it'd be crazy to fertilize in between the rows and down the drive rows. Uh, it would just be a ton of money. It would not be uh, affordable. And with this sheep herd, we're fertilizing the entire vineyard. Yeah. Every inch of that ground. And I really think the fact that the this grazing tactic that we use where we really once that cover crop really starts growing, once that, that native vegetation starts coming up in January or February, and we're giving them an acre a day and then moving them again and moving them again and moving them again, it, it's changed the game here. Yeah. So when you say mob grazing, does is it just grazing? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you're, you're basically maximizing the amount of sheep in one, in a small area for a short amount of time. So you reduce the amount of compaction because they're only in that one acre, one and a half acres for 12 hours or 24 hours. And then you move them again. And so you, you maximize the amount of manure that goes down on the ground. You maximize the amount of urine that goes down on the ground. And then they don't overgraze that vegetation either. They're not eating everything down to the roots or they're not focusing on just one little section where the vegetation is growing the best. They eat everything down just enough to where it can regrow and then they get moved again. And yeah, it's been very effective for sure. And moving on, there's a third component, farm worker fairness. What does that mean, farm worker fairness? For me personally, when we were asked to be a part of this pilot program, I wasn't, I didn't jump on board right away, let's say. I, I juggle 
our organic certification and our biodynamic certification. And it's a lot of paperwork and legwork. And the more time I deal with that, the less time I'm in the field. So I, wa- I didn't hop on this certification right away. But as I started to read into it more, this social welfare pillar, I kept going back to. And let's face it, the dark side of agriculture is the way that the farm workers are treated all over the world. They usually get the short end of the sick. They're, they get paid the least and they do the hardest work. And in too many situations, very there's an ugly, ugly side to how they're treated. I'd say less so in the vineyard world, but when you start seeing those strawberry pickers or you know any of the field or row crops, it, it can get it gets a lot darker. And I've recognized this. I mean, I've worked on a three thousand five hundred acre ranch with where everything was done by hand while I was there, and it struck a chord with me when I saw that 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 pillar was going to be a focus of this certification, and they were demanding that your workers get competitive wages and the amount of hours that are taken into account, uh, that they work stretching communication with management and each other. And we embarked on that journey and it was, I mean, it still gives me chills to this day thinking about it. We went through some training because we were going for the gold level certifications that required a third party certification, much like a a fair trade or something along those lines. And um, it's kind of a whole other story in itself because there weren't many there weren't really any certification bodies that dealt with farms that were as small as ours uh, in the in the grand scheme of agriculture so the group equitable farm initiative they basically started a pilot for themselves to deal with the smaller growers and we had a, a a team of trainers three women come out here for a week And we sat down and uh, myself and the crew and we worked on team building skills and communication skills with each other and with management and ownership, problem solving skills. And at the end of that training, it, it was an amazing turn of events. We started having team meetings in the conference room in the winery once a week and went around the table person by person to talk. What do you, do you guys, what do you see? What do you see? What, what could we be doing better? What could Gabrielle be doing better? What could I be doing better? What could David, the vineyard manager be doing better? And, and it just became this amazing process of, you have a culture that, that typically this working class isn't, they're not brought to the table and their voices aren't really ever heard. But on the same hand, some of these guys have worked this property for 20 years. They know it better than anyone here. And to not take their insight or observation into account is just crazy. And they were never given the chance to speak up. And and finally giving them a microphone and giving them a voice, it's been amazing to see what's come of it all. Can you share some examples of, you know, something that they brought up concretely and you were like, hey, you know, we could change this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we 
pruning. There were a couple blocks that we had pruned one way for a long time. And we always felt like we were just trying to play catch up with the pruning. And we had a guy, Casamiro, you know, raise his hand and say, I think we should start pruning Mubedra Mountain in December. Why do you think that, Casimir? Well, it breaks bud later than the rest, and it's our, one of our biggest blocks, and it's a, kind of a problem block because there's a lot of disease and virus and trunk disease, and, and it takes a little bit more time and finesse, and we pruned that block in December last year, and lo and behold, we weren't playing catch-up pruning because that turned out to be a problem block that we just didn't, I guess... You'd think it'd be so obvious, you know, but for some reason it just didn't really dawn on us. We always would just start pruning in the middle of January because that's the way we always did it. And small suggestion like that, you can't you can't quantify the savings with a small suggestion like that. And more so by giving these guys a voice and and really hearing them. In turn, it makes them think about what they're doing a lot. Makes them more engaged, for sure. Much more engaged. And it's not like, yeah, hey, Daniel, go do this job. Okay, I'm going to go do that job. I'm going to finish that job. What's next? Now it's like, why Why do you think we're doing this? And he goes out and he thinks about it in that sense. And there's, it's a lot more meaningful and a lot more engaging on every level. If Gabrielle sees Casemiro doing something one way and and he had a better suggestion before he just move on and probably say to himself oh i think he could be doing it x y and z but he's doing it a b and c now we're now we have that talk and it's it's okay it's okay to be like hey man i think you could be doing it better if you if you were driving the tractor this quickly or you're driving the tractor slower or whatever it is you know we've created this this line of communication, both between management and the crews and, and, and within the crew itself, that never existed before. And that, that is all because of this regenerative organic mm-hmm. certification. It's been a really powerful piece of the ROC. And if it were to all go away tomorrow, in my mind, I mean, learning what we have learned because of that social welfare pillar just makes this property so much better. I'm sure. As part of the ROC program, do you guys talk about the carbon footprint specifically for you guys as a winery in terms of blast use or your energy sources, or is that not part of the program? Yeah, no, it it absolutely has become a part of the program. All of our waste now is taken into account. We have multiple different receptacles for all of our waste within the offices and the winery and the tasting room. You know, bonfires are have always been a huge part of all forms of agriculture. You know, every year you collect all this biomass. We are moving towards biochar kilns. We're kind of in the process. I, I We just posted a blog yesterday about the biocharring. It's very informative. It's really exciting. I mean, that's going to be a huge hit on our carbon footprint as far as reducing it. Very, 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 very exciting. You know, even if the science doesn't support 
it does support using biochar in an ag system, but if for some reason they were wrong, even if there's no connection to the fertility of the soil, simply by not having these bonfires on a yearly basis is reducing our carbon footprint greatly. Can you give a quick overview on what biochar is for those who don't know what it is? Biochar is essentially charcoal. They have found forms of biochar in the Amazonian rainforest that date back a couple thousand years. So it's it's something that has been a part of agriculture for a very long time. And uh, essentially, you're taking a, a biomass and you're creating a pure form of carbon. And that carbon, I believe the one gram of biochar conservatively has about 2,000 square feet of surface area. So if you were to lay it flat, every little layer of that gram of biochar, I think it would, it would cover a, a volleyball court. And all of those layers act as binding agents for water molecules and nutrients within the soil. And they can basically act as a, a bank for that water and that nutrient. So as your soil profile dries out, it extracts the water from the biochar. As your plants need nutrients, they're able to access those nutrients within that biochar. So it, yeah, it's essentially just a, a form of charcoal, pure carbon, and it helps to activate it. So we incorporated it into our compost pile put compost down in the soil and and you have the sheep graze over it and there's all that nutrient you know moving through your soil profile but the biochar is grabbing it it's not letting it leach away you know and it keeps it in a attainable form for those plants so basically let's say it'll be charcoal made from burning cuttings from pruning etc like that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's some of the biomass that we'll be using to create biochar. So the majority of our prunings get chipped and saved for our compost program. Whatever is left over, because we always have some left over, we'll chip that and turn that into biochar. We're in the process of clearing out the understory of our back property. So, you know, Tablas Creek is 280 acres and 120 of those acres are farmed. So we have this excess land that we need for the animals to be able to graze during the the growing season. And, you know, they can't be in the vineyard. So a lot of that, that back property is these old native oak forests. And there's all this deadfall and old fallen trees. So we're in the process of clearing all that out create more grazable space for the animals. And with all of that biomass, we'll turn that into biochar as well as a reduces the amount of fuel for a wildfire, if that were to ever happen here. So there are multiple benefits for this biocharring process. But I, I'd say, you know, the main source for those kilns and our biomass will be the prunings of our grapevines and the wood that we remove from the understory on the back property. But in that case, I guess, isn't when you burn the cuttings from pruning, isn't that kind of not desirable? Yeah. So that you're starting the fire. You basically, you start the fire from the top down. 
And fire is, is basically, it's just the gases that are within that biomass combusting, right? So if you're burning the fire from the top down, and those gases, if you're burning from the bottom up, you'll emit CO2 in the form of smoke. If you're burning from the top down, that smoke doesn't ever reach the atmosphere because it has to make its way through that fire. So that smoke is burning off as well. So it's basically, if you do a biochar pit correctly, there is no smoke, there is no emission. The trick is putting that fire out appropriately. So some of the systems that we're looking at use water, there are covers for others, but I think we're going to be you know, using a system where you incorporate water into that pile or that burn, and you just don't want to see ash being formed. So you kind of get these coals going, and then the timing is crucial. And we're gonna we're learning about all of that. I mean that that's that's going to be a, a a process in itself. Mm-hmm. And so going back to the ROC, you know, the pilot started in 2019 with 19 farms. And then you guys as the first whiny, what's next for the organization? So that was the 2019 pilot. They had a, the pilot standards. So, you know, they were looking for input with all those farms and producers. And they just came out with their 2.0 there of, of standards for 2020, which is now open to the public, kind of. They did a loose unveiling, if you will. I mean, it, it's just really unfortunate this year with everything that's happened. I think it, it forced them to adjust the way that they were kind of releasing this certification. As far as I know, they have at least another 40 or 50 applicants ready to go for this certification. The amount of correspondence I've had with other growers in California alone has been really, really exciting and heartwarming. So I think they're trying to grow this certification organically, if you will. I think they're going to build their staff as more people apply And they can only handle so much at the moment. So they're being very selective as to who they bring on. I think it would be hard for a conventional farm to try and get this certification right now. Mm -hmm. I think they're looking at applicants that are kind of already on that path to, to make their lives a little bit easier. And as, you know, the, the, that list grows and their staffing grows, they'll be able to take on more of those bigger projects. Do you have any idea how much it costs in the time? It's really based on your operation and the size of your operation and what you're producing and whether or not you're looking to use the ROC label. There are a lot of factors involved as far as cost is concerned. You also need an organic certification as well. So there's that cost involved, but it's it's not that bad. I mean, I believe the initial fee for us was around $300. Then you have to pay for the audit, which is another cost in itself, probably around $1,200. And then depending on whether or not you're going to be using their label on your label, 
they take a very small percentage of your sales. So it's very comparable to an organic or biodynamic certification. They want to make it so it's attainable for all growers involved. And I believe they're they're even doing like a group certification thing where you can share costs with other farms as well. So it's it's really not that bad. And I don't know if we mentioned this earlier. I believe the minimum is organic certification for both the vineyard and the animals as well. Right. So obviously, whatever that costs um, entail. Yeah. And and if you're going to like for us. We're actually in the process of certifying the winery, not the wine organic, but the winery itself. So we'll be able to use, there's these federal guidelines with that word organic right now. They're very picky and choosy as to how and where you can use that word on your product. So we're, we're certifying our winery organic and the ROC label. It's, we've never really thought about using the Demeter label or our organic certifier label on our bottles because it wasn't a marketing tool for us. We were farming that way just because we felt it was the right thing to do. And we were tired of ask, people asking us, are you certified? But the ROC thing is, it's a powerful certification and uh, we definitely want to use it on our labels. Yeah. And I mean, obviously we're talking about wine, but I was on the Patagonia website and then they are selling regenerative organic food products. Like I mm-hmm. would imagine this is kind of where we're going. Like I can buy mangoes that are farmed organic, uh, excuse me, uh, regenerative or organically. So that's very exciting. You know, it is, it really is. I mean, the thing about this certification is that it, it really sends a message to the consumer that the animals are being treated fairly, the the farm is being farmed in a responsible way, but most importantly, the people that are on that farm are being treated fairly. So it's it's like buying a fair trade product. You know, you know in your heart as a consumer that this money that I'm spending is going to a good place, you know, a place that is concerned with the environment and is concerned with the welfare of the people on that property and the animals on that property. And I think the, I do, I do believe that that is their hope that one day you'll walk into a grocery store and there will be a shelf saying, you know, this is ROC certified food for sure. Is there anything else that I might have missed during our talk today? No, I think we covered a lot of the bases. I mean, I think just going back to that point of, you know, this is the only certification of, of its kind that addresses climate change directly. Biodynamic farming and organic farming, indirectly they address climate change, but it's not a focus. And, and that, is, that is the goal of this certification. If more forms of agriculture started farming regeneratively, the impact that we could make as a species on climate change is drastic, you know, more so than any piece of legislation or law that's put in place in a city or moving cars toward electric or whatever it is. That That is the beauty of this certification. And Hopefully, I I really, really, really hope that this one takes off and we all start farming like the world depends on it. Thank you so much. This was a super great talk and I learned so much and uh, really appreciate your time. Thank you, Jordan. 
Thank you, IC, and, and come on out to Tablas. I'd love to show you around. Yes, I'd love to uh, check out all the animals for sure and everything else. <laughs> Absolutely. Have a great day. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any comments, suggestions for topics or interviewees, please reach out on Instagram at UngraftedPodcast or on our website at UngraftedPodcast.com. <laughs>